Our theme this week is Christ our righteousness. And my effort this morning is going to be talking about Christ our humility. And my sermon title in particular would be Humble and Proud of It. The theme of pride and humility is a very important subject for us. And uh, let me have one more prayer with you as we proceed. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this beautiful place and that you brought your people together here for this Sabbath morning. You promised that when we come together in your name to be in our midst, please be here, Lord. And especially as I delve on a subject uh, dealing with the, the issues of both pride and humility, uh, things that are polar opposites, things that we all struggle with, I pray that um, the vehicle through which you communicate will be lost today and Christ will be seen and that we'll all be transformed through your spirit to be more like him. Be ready for his return. In Jesus' name, amen. It is the big sin, pride. It's what turned an angel into a devil. And it's the handle to which the devil can attach every other sin, pride. The way you spell sin is S-I-N. And right there in the middle, sin is all about I. Our theme is not I, but Christ. Amen. And the devil is all about I. If you turn, you can see where this problem first appeared. If you look in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you said in your heart. Oh, did I, what did I, did I say, Isaiah? I said, Revelation, I'm just checking again. I, I know Pastor checked on us last night. Isaiah, thank you, dear. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Now, Revelation 12 is also a good chapter, but... I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's try that again. Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, notice, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides in the north. You know, you can't get to the end of east and west. They go on forever. But there is a place you can go towards the North Pole and you get to the top, the zenith. And the devil was looking for the zenith position. I will also sit the farthest, the highest part of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you'll be brought down to Sheol, to the grave, to the lowest parts of the pit. The devil, someone said, had eye problems. He'd been eyed. And we've won, all of us have been eyed by pride. And Jesus died because we've been eyed by pride. It was pride that nailed Jesus to the cross. And all of us struggle with it. You can see this theme entirely through the scriptures. 
dealing with the devil and the issue of pride. Someone said that uh, pride is the devil's dragnet in which he catches the most fish. The spirit of the world is one of selfishness, which manifests itself in pride. The spirit of heaven is love. The very opposite of that is the devil, and it's the spirit of selfishness and pride. Pride is the epitome. It is the main manifestation of selfishness, and it's one that I wrestle with all the time. What was it that brought down Nebuchadnezzar? You remember the story? He had that dream of great tree that filled the whole earth and fed the whole earth and all the earth and the creatures and the people found shade in its branches and food from its fruits and, and he wondered what it meant. And when the wise men of Babylon couldn't tell him, finally Daniel was called. They always call Daniel and Joseph last to figure out what these dreams mean. <laughs> and they said, you are that tree, O king. God is giving you a great position of influence, but you are taking the glory upon yourself. And you're that tree that's going to be cut down. But after you've been humbled, after seven times passes over you, you'll be restored. And the king didn't want that to happen. And Daniel said, well, I've got some advice for you. Break off your sins by righteousness, showing mercy to the poor. It might be a lengthening of your tranquility. And you know, the king actually did humble himself. It lasted for a little while, but then after a year, he was walking on the balcony and he was surveying all the glories of Babylon. The sun was going down and it was gold glinting everywhere. And he saw the hanging gardens of Babylon and the, the aqueducts and the water and the, all this vast kingdom and all these other kingdoms were subdued under his kingdom and he couldn't resist the temptation to think it was because of him. And he forgot that the Lord said, I'm the one that gave it to you. I can take it away. And he said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? You can find this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30 and 31. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. Right after he took the glory upon himself came the verdict, the kingdom is departed from me. Do you want to lose the kingdom? It was through pride and giving himself the credit that the kingdom was departed. This is what happened to Saul. Saul was tested. He was told to go and obey a command of the Lord. And, and he was more interested with what the people thought of him than what God thought of him. And Samuel the prophet came and he said, God sent you on a mission. And he told you to eradicate the Amalekites and, and you've kept the king and you've kept the spoil. And he said, oh yeah, but the people. Saul was much more concerned with what the people thought of him than what God thought of him. And you know, that's what pride is all about. If it wasn't for competition, would pride be a problem? Think about it. The reason a person is not satisfied with their car or their house or their salary or their dress is often because they're looking horizontally at someone who's got a better salary and a better position and a better house and a better car and a better dress. And so often we become preoccupied with comparing ourselves among ourselves and by ourselves and, and that's what pride is all about. It's all about being a little better than others. 
What would you be proud of if you were the only person in the world? <laughs> You'd have nothing to compare it to. And that's why you know, we need to be very careful about this competition business. And we live in a world that is just built on competition. And I think I'd rather live in a capitalistic society than a communistic society or a socialist society, but it has its dangers. And uh, it's all about pride. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he took the glory upon himself. Saul, more interested in what the people thought. You know what Samuel said to him? God was testing you, but because of this, your kingdom will not abide. You are going to lose your crown. Why did Saul get so upset and want to kill David? When Saul came marching back from a battle with his soldiers and David was his armor bearer, he's by his side, he heard the women singing as they came out with their tambourines and their dance and they said, Saul has slain his thousands. And Saul stood a little straighter on his horse and he took a chest full of air and he tilted up his chin and then he heard the second verse of the song. <laughs> up until he heard the second verse, he was perfectly happy. And you know what the second verse is? First verse, Saul has slain his thousands. Second verse, David is ten thousands. His whole countenance changed because he was comparing himself with David and he was no longer satisfied. There was someone better than him and he couldn't be content. And from that moment on, he could not think peaceably about David. Why did, J why did Joseph's brothers want to kill him? It wasn't just because he had a dream. It's because in his dream, he said, you're bowing down to me. And it all came true. And it wasn't until they were satisfied that God had exalted Joseph above them that they could really have peace. They went through a lot of testing under Joseph before they became satisfied. And they weren't worried about one being better than them. Why did the disciples argue among themselves? What were they arguing about? Which of them was the greatest? They had already conceded that Judas would be the best treasurer, but they were arguing about the other <laughs> issues. Who should be the prime minister? And who would sit on the right hand and the left hand? Who would get these positions of honor? And Jesus said, when you go to a feast, do not seek out the chief seats and shuffle and jostle and try to position yourself so you could be first in line. It's always good to say that just before a mass of people are released for a potluck. <laughs> but he said, you take the lowest position. It's much better to have the, the host come to you and say, no, 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 you don't sit here. I've got a better chair for you. And for you to be brought to a better station than for you to go fight over the best seat and have the host come and say, sorry, that's not where you're supposed to sit. You're supposed to sit down there or in the nosebleed section. So much of what Jesus taught was about the issues of pride and trying to get ahead. You know why I say this? Is after the disciples finally learned that lesson, he was able to pour out the Holy Spirit. And before you saw the former reign of the Holy Spirit, the disciples humbled themselves. They confessed their faults to one another. They were content with the position that Jesus had assigned them with. They were in the upper room praying together. And then he could pour out the Spirit when they humbled themselves. You know, before the rain came in the days of Elijah, the people fell on their knees and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They had to humble themselves. And then the rain came. 
And in the last days, the church is going to have to be humbled. We're going to have to get where we are really sane from our hearts. Christ is our humility, not I, but Christ. That Jesus is all in all. And Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. If people want to walk over me, that's their business. That's your business. But if you want to see a church come apart at the seams, have a nominating committee. <laughs> Where people who have been in certain positions for years, for whatever reason, it might be a perfectly noble reason that the committee gets together and they feel impressed that maybe we need to train in some new leadership and let them be Sabbath school superintendent. Let them be on this committee. Let them be head deaconess or head elder. And watch how these people who have held these positions of spiritual leadership, when it's given to someone else, it's amazing how unspiritual they can suddenly become. In a spiritual way, they can become very unspiritual. I think your laugh is one of agreement that we all have those tendencies. Pride. That's not just pride of our accomplishments. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's so great of what he had accomplished and, and saw. Martin Luther used to tell this uh, parable about a woodpecker that was out in the woods one dark day and he was woodpecking against a dry tree and lightning flashed from the sky and hit the top of the tree and blew it to smithereens. And the woodpecker was startled but uninjured. And he flew, flew away and he squawked to all the other birds, look what I did, look what I did. <laughs> and that's what Nebuchadnezzar was saying. He couldn't do anything without God. And that's what Saul was saying. God had taken Saul when he was small in his own eyes. He was physically big but small in his own eyes. And those first few years of his reign... He was successful. But when he became big in his own eyes, God couldn't use him anymore. Who was it? Spurgeon that said, we should never be proud of race or place or face. And some are proud of their appearance. How did Absalom get in trouble? A little bit spoiled probably by his father. David was a little detached. He was so busy with his kingdom and building it that he forgot sometimes his family. And he lost four boys because he was so busy doing that work that he wasn't thinking about the work at home. And always praising Absalom, you, you are the best looking kid in the kingdom. And he came to believe it. And everybody else praised him. And you know, it was true. He was good looking. The Bible says there was no one to be so much praised for their appearance as Absalom, 2 Samuel chapter 14, from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. And he had this, this massy mane of beautiful hair like I do. And, you know, while we're on the subject, I have a theory that to be perfectly sanctified and ready for translation, men need to be bald. Now, Elijah, you, you know what they said after Elijah went to heaven? They said to Elijah, go up, thou bald head. <laughs> what got Samson in trouble? Hair. Absalom got caught by a hair in the trees. <laughs> I'm getting ready for translation. That's all this means. <laughs> but he was proud of his appearance. And it went to his head. And you know what he wanted? 
He wanted the same thing Lucifer wanted. He was willing to kill his own father, his own creator, you might say, that he might have his position. Absalom mirrored the very sentiments of the devil. The devil, beautiful. And we need to be careful about complimenting people. Now, we all appreciate being appreciated. And I think it's entirely appropriate. And, you know, before I've talked to someone and said, that looks nice. Or, hey, guy, that's a beautiful tie or whatever. And people like to be affirmed. People like to know that you're pleased. And that's appropriate. But when you begin to smother people with compliments, the Bible actually says that that's sinful. Flattery is where you're saying nice things for the purpose of trying to get in a better position yourself or manipulate people. And someone told me that compliments are like perfume. Sniff, do not swallow. <laughs> if people say something nice, say thank you, but don't believe everything nice people say. You know, I, um, several times, you know, you're preaching and you're at the door and people come up and they're very gracious and they say nice things, wonderful sermon. And I remember it was John Knox I read one time where he was standing in a church like that and afterward this lady came up to him and said, Brother Knox, you are the best preacher in all of Scotland. And he said, ma'am, I know it. The devil tells me every day. <laughs> and uh, I've had people come up and say nice things to me. And then how many of you ever remember Harold Camping? He had family radio. He predicted the, the Lord was coming on three different occasions, I think. And... Uh, I like family radio. They're still on. They have some good music. One of the only Christian stations that still has good music. And they, they'll just read the Bible to you on the air. And there's things I appreciate. I think the Lord raised up that station because of the good features. But sometimes a person's strength is also their weakness. And dear Brother Camping, we interviewed him before he died. I don't know if you know that. And uh, his Bible studies were kind of goofy. I don't know if you ever heard, in my opinion. Matter of fact, his theology I thought was just awful. Um, but I listened to people call up when he had this open forum Bible answer program and they say, Brother Camping, you are just the best preacher. I so appreciate it. And so when I stand at the door and people compliment me, a little voice says, Doug, they also compliment Harold Camping. <laughs> and I've gotten letters and I'm telling you this, this is the truth, friends. I hope you believe I'm not exaggerating. But I've gotten letters and amazing facts where people have written us and they say, Pastor Doug, I want you to know that you and Benny Hinn are my favorite preachers. <laughs> so don't take those compliments too seriously. Somebody said, humility is the triumph of mind over flatter. That's what it means to have the spirit of Christ. Job 32, 21, let me not, I pray thee, show partiality to anyone nor let me flatter any man. And even with children, we need to be careful. There's a quote from the book, Child Guidance, page 178. Self-will and pride are evils that turned angels into demons and barred the gates of heaven from them. And yet parents unconsciously are systematically training their children to be agents of Satan through unnecessary compliments and flattery. We not only do it with our own, we do it with others. Children should be encouraged, but don't be unrealistic. They get to where they just want it and need it all the time. There's a balance. You all understand what I'm saying. 
We can be proud of our position. Everyone wants to get a promotion. You remember Haman? The book of Esther? You can read there in chapter 6. Matter of fact, you might go there quickly. You've got your Bibles handy. Oh, I'll start with chapter 5. Haman was the king's friend, so the king promoted him and made him prime minister, so to speak. And um, he was wealthy, had a big family, successful in business, but he was extremely ambitious. And when a person is ambitious, that's different for, than a person that is eager to just do God's will. That means they're looking for the next promotion. Haman was like that. And then one day, after the king promoted him, he had no idea. He was so upset that Mordecai would not bow down. Everybody bowed down to him. The king commanded everybody to bow down to him. But whenever Haman came in to see the king and he went back out and he passed this Jew in the gate named Mordecai who would not bow down, it wrecked his day. He was so full of himself that this one person that wouldn't bow down was like a fly in the ointment. It just poisoned his life and he... He had to be better than everybody. He needed everybody to worship him. Why does the devil hate Christians so much? Most of the world consciously or unconsciously worships the devil. Why did the devil hate Job so much? Why did God say, have you considered my servant Job? He's basically saying, no, you don't have the whole world. I've got someone down there that worships me. And Mordecai, the Jew, representing God's people, would not bow down. And it just made him so mad that he was ready to give everything he had and do everything he had, even to his own destruction, to bring down Mordecai. And he goes in, he sees the king, and while he's seeing the king, the king says, hey, you know, I got good news. I don't know why she asked. He said, but you know, Queen Esther, she came in and she said she wants to have a banquet. She even risked her life. She came in to me and I held out the scepter and I thought, what in the world does she want? She says, I want a banquet for you and Haman. And the king says, I don't know what she's got in mind, Haman, but you and I are invited to a special banquet of the queen. And Haman thinks, wow, I have arrived. I'm the king's friend. I'm the queen's friend. He didn't know what was going up at that banquet. <laughs> I've got the best real estate here in the kingdom where everybody can see my house. And he walks back out his chest is swelling with pride, and, but he's got to walk through the gate. So Haman went out that day joyful. I am in Esther 5, verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful with a glad heart. Yeah, even proud people that have the spirit of the devil can experience the pleasures of sin for a season. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. He wanted to destroy him, but instead he thought, I'm going to plot. He went home and he called his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman told them of my, his riches and the multitude of his children and everything the king had promoted him. He's all about his promotions, his riches, his big family. And how he had advanced him above all the officers and the servants of the king. I'm better than everyone. It's all about comparison and competition. Moreover, Haman said, beside that, even Queen Esther has invited no one except me and the king to come to this banquet that she's prepared. And tomorrow I'm invited again by her, along with just the king. Yet all of this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew standing in the king's gate. Standing or sitting, whatever, he won't bow and tremble before me. 
Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king, just get this out of the way so you can enjoy everything. You don't even have to wait until the death decree. In advance of the death decree, the devil's going to try to get rid of some. That Mordecai be hanged on these gallows, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And this thing pleased Haman. So he had, he ordered gallows built. They must have worked fast. They built a gallows 50 feet high in about eight hours. You know the rest of the story? That night, the day before, Haman is going to go to the king with this special, he wants him to just sign the death decree. It's just one person that you need to get rid of this guy. And the king thought, oh, you're my friend. Yeah, sure, I'll do that for you. No problem. But that night, the king couldn't sleep. And he tried everything. He didn't know why he couldn't sleep. And he had the musicians playing for him. And finally, when he couldn't sleep, the most boring thing in the world is he would bring the scribe in and he'd say, look, can you read the chronicles of the kingdom? Every now and then I've got to listen to you read the chronicles to figure out you know, the minutes from our last board meeting, figure out what's been going on, what have I forgotten? And this guy evidently that read the chronicles for the king had a monotonous droning voice. He thought, if I can get that guy to just read the minutes to me, that'll put me to sleep. <laughs> now, friends, what I'm going to tell you is absolutely true. One of the most common things people tell me when they come up and they say, Pastor Doug, we love your programs. In fact, when we have trouble sleeping at night. <laughs> they don't mean it as an insult. I don't think they realize what they're saying. They say, we go to bed every night listening to your programs. <laughs> That's really what they say. So I'm glad that I could be of service. So this scribe is brought in, and he starts to read. And the king is finally, he's settling down, and he's realizing he's just between consciousness and unconsciousness. And the scribe is droning on, and he says, And there was a plot made to king, kill the king and to assassinate him. The king opened one eye. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Mordecai the Jew revealed the plot to the king and it was determined to be true and the assassins were executed and then he went on to something else. He said, wait, wait, read that again. He read it again. He said, what did we do for this guy Mordecai that saved my life? He said, let me check the minutes. <laughs> Nothing, your highness. And the king sits up and thinks, wow, I'm not a very good king. Guy saves my life and I don't give him a, a coupon at Subway. I don't give him anything. <laughs> No gift certificate. He doesn't get a card or a letter. Wow. Saved my life. And he's thinking, I've got to do something special for this guy. It'll be late, but I'll make it good. While he's thinking that, don't you love God's providence? The bell rings. And the king says, who is at the gate at this early hour? They said, it's Haman. Bring him in. I got a question for him. And so Haman comes in, and the king says, I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad I've got a friend like you. You know, I've got something on my mind, and I've got a question I need to ask you. Haman, what shall be done for the man that the king delights to honor? Now I'm doing this all quickly to save time. And so Haman thinks within himself, well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? I. I, I, 
Pride is like a compass that always points to self. And we all struggle with it. You ever notice that you'll be in a conversation, someone tells you about a wonderful story, and if you're a man, if someone tells you an amazing story, what do you do? Well, I got a better story. <laughs> right? Come on, guys. Oh, I caught a fish that was 50 pounds. Oh, really? That's interesting. Amazing. Well, let me tell you about my fish. <laughs> and that proves that the gospel, it can really transform people because Jesus picked fishermen and made them humble. And they told the truth. Who does the king want to delight to honor more than me? And so listen to what he says. Here's what I recommend, your highness. Get the best robe in the kingdom. Matter of fact, one that the king wears. And get the king's horse, the best royal horse. And put the robe on this man and put the crown on his head, the king's crown. And get the most prominent man in the kingdom and have him with, you know, this procession of leaders and trumpets lead this man up the street and just with an exalting voice, blow the trumpets and gather all the people together. And there he'll be on the king's horse with the king's robe and the king's crown. And he'll say, thus shall it be done to the one who the king delights to honor. Now you realize what Haman is saying is what he really wants. Because he thinks the king is going to say, this is what I want to do for you. Which really divulges what did he want. He wanted to be the king. I would be like the most high. Why do you think the devil said to Eve, Ah, oh, if you listen to me, you will be like God. The devil was superimposing his own corrupt ultimate desire in the hearts. He was planting that in the hearts of Adam and Eve. And in those seeds of sin, it took heart in the human soul. And every son of Adam and Eve, every daughter, we all struggle with that same desire to be our own God. Why do you think these Eastern religions are so popular? They basically say, you are God. And at the foundation of righteousness by works, part of the reason I was going to talk this afternoon in the breakout session about what's happening with the Catholic Church and, and the final movements is because you know what the, the big debate is going to be in the last days? It's going to be about worship. Christ our righteousness or man-made righteousness? And it's all about wanting what the devil wanted. I want to be God. I want to be in control of my salvation. I did it. And so, can I, you know, when I get to heaven, there's several videos I want to see. From the Bible times. I want to see, I want to see the look on those 11 brothers' faces when Joseph says to them at that banquet, I am Joseph. I want to see that video. I want to see the look on Haman's face when the king says to him, that's a great idea. I couldn't have thought of anything better. I want you to do everything that you just described. And Haman's going, yes, yes. <laughs> and in his back pocket, he's got a death decree for Mordecai rolled up. And the king says, I want you to do that for Mordecai, the Jew that sits in the gate. I want to see the video of that face. <laughs> One other video I want to see, I want to see the video of Jacob's face in the morning when he says, behold, it was Leah. 
Now, am I the only one that has wondered about that? Can you imagine the look on Haman's face? When the king said, do everything you said. Do not fail to do everything you said. It's a command. Do it for Mordecai the Jew. He had to do it right then. And can you imagine? I wonder also the look on Mordecai's face. When he saw Haman coming up, he thought, oh, this, is, this must be curtains. <laughs> and he said, look, put on the king's robe. Put on the king's crown. Get on the king's horse. Follow me. And he had to go up and down the street with trumpeters and say, thus shall it be done to the one. <laughs> this is the Jew who would not bow down to him. Does it say somewhere in the Bible, a haughty spirit goes before a fall? Does it say in the Bible, he that humbles himself will be exalted? And he that exalts himself will be humbled? Some of the most humiliating experiences that I've had, I remember one time, I was flying, I flew into St. Louis actually. I was on my way to 3 ABN to do some taping. I was gonna speak at a church on the way and uh, for Sabbath and, and I, I landed in St. Louis and I went to get my rental car, national rental car. Rental car and, and while I'm at the counter there, the gal looks at me and she goes, are you on TV? <laughs> and this doesn't happen all the time so it's exciting for me when I, you know, it happens. And, and so I said, well, yes, I always have to be careful when I say that because I've actually had people say, are you that car salesman, that annoying car salesman <laughs> late at night? And, and so, you know, they said, yes, I'm on TV. <laughs> and I said, that. I said, yes. And so the, the gal behind the counter, she said, I watch your programs. You're that guy, batch, batch, amazing. You know, they always, they, they watch it, but they don't always know who you are. <laughs> and she said, look, I'm going to give you an upgrade. I said, well, that's, uh, I like upgrades, you know, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. I said, well, that's very nice, I appreciate that. I was going to get an economy car, and she's like, get an upgrade. And, and she said, she's just looking, and she's looking at what she's got, and she says, how'd you like a convertible? I looked outside and said, well, you know, it's snowing out there. It a and she said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what I was thinking. She really did that. And, and uh, she said, oh, you know what? We have, here in St. Louis, we have uh, the super-duper deluxe executive car. No one ever gets it. And she said, we got this Cadillac XL something or other. And she said, it's our executive car for businessmen that come in. It's very expensive, but she says, no one ever uses it. No one will ever know. She said, I'm going to give you that car. It's not reserved. I said, okay. <laughs> and so, now, a little thing crossed my mind when she told me that. She pointed to it out in the parking lot, and it was a very nice, it was like a black, you know, it was like a presidential Cadillac. And, and I'm thinking to myself, now here I am, a pastor. <laughs> and, you know, we are supported at Amazing Facts entirely by donations. We get no subsidies from any organization. Notice how I slipped that in? <laughs> and it's not good to pull up to a church where they invited you to speak, and you are in the most expensive rental car. So I thought, I'll just park in the back down the street and I'll walk into the church. And no one will know. And she said, uh, she said, you'll like this. It's got a heated steering wheel. It's got all this stuff. And I'm going, yeah, what a bunch of wimps, heated steering wheel. 
And so it was very cold. And so I got in the car and I, I got, and it was cold. And I thought, I got to try this out. So I turned on the heated steering wheel and thought, wow, this really is nice, you know. <laughs> so I drove and I got to the church. I forgot what church it was at. I'm not telling you. And, uh, and uh, so I got there and I thought, well, there's, I got there early. There's almost, you know, not too many people. The folks had come for Sabbath school. And so I parked in the back of the parking lot. And I thought, I'll just wait until there's nobody, there's little families are start, starting to go in, and I'll slip out, and I'll, you know, come over. I'll get as far away from the car before I hit the alarm, you know. And, and so I, I got out, I, I got away from the car, and, and a bunch of people were getting out of their cars and going in. And so I went and hit the alarm, but instead of hit, hitting the <laughs> alarm, I, I wasn't used to this thing, I hit the panic button. Right? <laughs> And this black Cadillac there in the back of the parking lot started going boom, boom, boom. And I'm looking around like, you know, I figured it'll go off and I'm pressing the button discreetly and nothing's happening. Finally, I had to walk over to it and everybody's looking. Now that is one of many experiences I could tell you. Some of them I will not tell you because the Lord knows how to humble us. Just take my word for it. And um, I pray just like everybody. I know my biggest... And you know, when I share these things with you, and I pray before I even share it with you, because um, I'm not at all immune. As a matter of fact, pride, not because I'm a televangelist, but because I'm just me, is my biggest problem. It's not that I've got anything to be proud of. I could rehearse for you all my problems and weaknesses, and you, your, any illusions you've got of me being something would evaporate pretty quick. But it's selfishness. At the heart of all pride is just selfishness. We automatically think about our pride. And you know, just as soon as you think that you've arrived with humility is the moment that you've lost it. Pride is one of the things we also hate the most in others and we're last to recognize in ourselves. You can not only have pride of position, like Haman, the disciples, which of them was the greatest? One of the most dangerous forms of pride is the baptized pride. Pride in the church. First thing that Jesus preached. Said they pray to be seen of men. They fast to be seen of men. They give to be seen of men. It's good to fast. It's good to pray. It's good to give. And if you are a converted Christian, you know the Bible doesn't say that we're not supposed to fast in the last days. Jesus didn't say, don't fast. He, he said, while the bridegroom is with you, the friends of the bridegroom don't fast, but the day will be taken when the, the bridegroom will be taken away and the friends of the, the bridegroom will fast. You hear very few sermons on fasting. But as we enter the last days and we all have things to fast and pray about, we need to know how to fast. And if man fell because he couldn't control and she couldn't control what they ate. We need to have victory over appetites because it's going to be a test in the last days as well. Amen. So fasting's good. But I've noticed that when I am fasting, I have a hard time not telling anybody. Because you know, you sort of get spiritual credit when you're fasting. There's some kind of sanctified points we all keep coupons for and, and we want everyone to give us credit for... No, I, I'm fasting today. I can't join you for lunch. <laughs> and we may not disfigure our faces, as Jesus said, and tussle our hair, but 
Sometimes we want to let people know, well, I'm fasting. Or we give to be seen. You ever wonder why they pass plates? Have you ever given, I won't ask you to raise your hands, they're passing a plate and you know other people are watching and, and you think, oh, yeah, I didn't come prepared. I don't really want to give. I don't have much to give. But people are watching. What will they think? Come on, fess up. Don't raise your hands. Just fess it to the Lord. And sometimes we give to be seen. Blow a trumpet. These people would come to the temple. They'd sound a trumpet. They'd make their offerings. Who did Jesus praise? The widow who gave everything she had and didn't want any attention at all. And God exalted that, the highest. He was not impressed with the millionaire who gives a little bit because they go home and it required no sacrifice. They're going to eat the same, sleep in the same bed, wear the same clothes. There's no change in their life from their gift. But the widow who gave everything is the one that Christ exalted. He said, what she's done will be seen. Called attention to her. We pray to be seen. By the way, the Pharisees love to wear the broad phylacteries to be seen and they pray long prayers. Private prayers should be long. Public prayers are the ones that should be short. Uh, the longest prayer in the Bible is actually the prayer of Jesus in John 17. The prayer that brought fire down from heaven in the days of Elijah. How'd you like to be able to pray like Elijah? You ever time that prayer? It's under 30 seconds. Fire came down. And we need to, when we sing sweet hour of prayer, that ought to, we ought to be spending time with God in our closets and our public prayers ought to be to the point. We shouldn't be trying to impress somebody with our prayers. Spiritual pride. Jesus said, Matthew 6, Take heed, you do not do your charitable deeds to be seen before men. Make a donation and have them name a room, a pew, a window, a brick after you. I've got struggles with that. I'm sorry if you've done it before, but let not your left hand know what your right hand does when you give. Because what could be at the core of that? Pride. Beware, Christ said, of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes and they love the greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue, the best places at the feast, and they devour widows' houses. They've got great greed and selfishness, but for a pretense they make long prayers. They're going to compensate. These will receive the greater condemnation. Spiritual pride. King Isaiah was a good king. Amen? Well, when you think about the different kings, he's listed among the good kings. It says the Lord was with him. By the way, he had the second longest reign of any king. <laughs> longest reign was King Manasseh, 55 years. King Isaiah, 52 years. Can you imagine having the same president in 52 years? Four years is enough for most of them. Sorry, bad time to get political, right? But he was a good king for most of the time. But you know, it says that after God blessed him and he became very strong, he became self-sufficient and he, he was lifted up. His heart was lifted up to his destruction. That's pretty dangerous when that happens because then he thought, I should be able to do what the priests do. He had accomplished everything he set out to do. He said, but you know, these pagan kings, they get to go into their temples and they get to offer in their temples on their altars and they get to go through all of this. And said, but only the priests are allowed into the temple. 
I never even get to go into the holy place. I'm the king. I should be able to do everything. I'm the king. Muhammad Ali. He used to, uh, when he was the heavyweight champion of the world, uh, I think everyone that knows will say he wasn't humble about it. <laughs> he used to say, I'm the king of the world. And the story goes, one time he got on an airplane. He was in the first class section and there was a lot of photographers who were kind of following along and, and uh, he was getting ready for a big flight and he got on the plane and before they took off, flight attendant came by and said, uh, uh, Mr. Ali, you need to put on your seatbelt. And he said, I don't need no seatbelt. He wanted to make sure everyone heard him. He said, I'm Superman. I don't need no seatbelt. And she said, uh, Superman doesn't need a plane either. You need to put on your seatbelt. <laughs> now, I'm sure a lot of that was, you know, just fanfare that they all go through to try and build things up. I don't think he feels the same way today. He was greatly humbled with his disease that was connected with boxing. King of the world. And he took a, I'm talking back about Isaiah, he took a censer, put incense in it. Only the priests were supposed to bring that into the sanctuary. And he walked in where only the priests were supposed to go. And he took upon himself something that God's word clearly said was reserved for the sons of Aaron. And when they saw it, they met him and they said, Your Highness, this will not be for your glory. This is not good. You're going against the word of God. All the other kings do it. I'm just as capable as you guys are, and he had all his arguments. And they said, Isaiah, turn back. This is not good for you. And 80 of the priests withstood him. And he became enraged. And while he launched into a fury, you know, pride will do that. Some people, when you offend their pride, they become very angry. Maybe they start to retaliate. And sometimes they resort to insult. You know how many arguments have happened in families and marriages because pride? Matter of fact, most divorces, you could probably boil it down and somebody is just being proud. And you know what's really sad? In doing counseling, a lot of marital problems could be resolved and marriages could be reconciled if one or both of the partners would humble themselves and apologize and they can't bring themselves to do that and so they'll wreck the marriage because of pride. I've just found it's always a good idea to tell Karen, you're right. Whether I believe it or not, just is it. And you know, if you're smart, you know how to apologize honestly without totally conceding that that doesn't mean I think that all of your points were correct but you can still apologize and you can mean I am sorry that we argued. That's what reconciliation is all about. Pride. He became angry. And while he launched into this fit, leprosy sprang out in his forehead. Why did Miriam get leprosy? She was offended that here she was the one who had delivered Moses as a little baby when you know, she went to Pharaoh's daughter and got him adopted. She was the older sister. She was one who'd led Israel in prophecy. She was a prophetess. But she wasn't consulting Moses anymore. She was talking to Moses' wife, who was not even a Jew. 
And that really began to bother Miriam that she wasn't being brought into the inner council of what Moses was doing. And she stirred up Aaron. I just read this last week in Patriarchs and Prophets. It was pride. She got leprosy. What does leprosy represent in the Bible? How did Naaman get leprosy? God used it to save him, actually, but it was because of his sin, his pride. Naaman thought his problem was leprosy. His problem was he was rich, he was strong, he was famous, he was courageous. His problem was he was proud of it, too. And when he humbled himself, and he had to take off his clothes and bathe in a dirty river, when he humbled himself, he was cleansed. When Miriam humbled herself, she was cleansed. And King Isaiah was humbled. And that's what we need. Humble ourselves before the Lord. It was spiritual pride that nailed Jesus to the cross. Have you ever read in Mark chapter 15, verse 9? Pilate said to the accusing Jewish leaders, Do you want me to release your king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Why did they want to get rid of Jesus? Pride. Because the people were following him instead of them. And here they had the temple. They had the degrees. They had the prestige. And here all of the rabble were following Jesus and it just ate them up. Even Joshua didn't totally understand this when the Holy Spirit fell on the people of Israel and two men who were in the camp, Eldad and Medad, they didn't feel like they were worthy to come with the other 70 elders. And Joshua went and said, Moses, all of the people are prophesying. And even Mildad and Edad are in the camp and they're prophesying. And you're the prophet. They're not supposed to prophesy. And you know what Moses said? Oh, Joshua, are you jealous for me? Would God that all of his people were prophets. God wants to fill all of us with his spirit. But sometimes we're so concerned that somebody might get something that we don't get. And we become jealous. We become angry. Even... King Hezekiah struggled with this. I mean, you could just go through the kings. King Hezekiah, he was a good king. I think if he was in your church, you'd want him to be a member of your church. By the way, you can find this in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 12. The story of what happened with he and um, Hezekiah, uh, he and Isaiah. Hezekiah had been blessed on every side, and he great possessions. You can read, at that time, Berodak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that the king had been sick. Now, this is one of the great lost opportunities of history. Hezekiah was sick. He had a boil or something, and he had a fever. That looked like it was spreading, and he cried, and he prayed, and Isaiah came to him, and Isaiah the prophet was given a word from the Lord. And the Lord told Hezekiah through Isaiah, set your house in order for you will die and not live. Get your estate all written up. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he cried and he prayed and he wept and he said, Lord, I have served you faithfully. I've done what other kings have not done. I put you first and I've trusted you. And, and he cried and God couldn't take it anymore. Before Isaiah even got out of the premises of the palace, he was told to turn back. He said, go tell Hezekiah, captain of my people, I have seen your tears, I have heard your prayer, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. And you'll have a son during that time, and he'll be king. That turned out not to be so good. And so, what sign do you want, Isaiah said, that God's going to do this thing and heal you? 
Do you want the sun to go down 10 degrees or do you want it to go backwards 10 degrees? Hezekiah thought like I probably would have thought, well, it's not a big deal for the sun to go down. It does that every day. But I'd really be impressed. I know it stopped in the time of Joshua, but if you not only stop it, but put it in reverse. And so Isaiah prayed to the Lord and God did for a man that he had something he'd never done before in that the sun not only stopped, it began to go backwards. And off in Mesopotamia, where they were great students of the heavens, and they were watching the sundial one day and it stopped moving, and then they noticed it began to go backwards. And they took chalk and they marched on the sundial and they said, are we seeing things? And they, they saw that it went backwards and they inquired around the world, what had happened? What caused this wonder? What does it mean? Is it some harbinger, some terrible calamity? And finally word reached them. No, this is because of Jehovah, the God of Israel. Hezekiah was sick, and it's a sign he would be healed. God made the sun go backwards. What a God. We need to find out about that God. And they sent messengers to Jerusalem to find out about Jehovah, which is what God intended to happen. But what did, what did Hezekiah do with this opportunity? He had heard Hezekiah had been sick, sent a present a letter and said, tell us about your God. Hezekiah, verse 13, was attentive to them, and he showed them all of the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the ointments, and all his armory, his treasures, all that was found among his treasures. There's nothing in all his house that Hezekiah, or in his dominion, that Hezekiah did not show them. You notice that when I talked about Satan, it said, I, 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 five times. I don't, did I count five eyes? There's five of them. Hezekiah? His, 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 his. The king's. Not God. It was all about me. And he lost one of the greatest missionary opportunities. Do you know they say that people in mental institutions use the words I, me, my, mine, and myself ten times more than sane people. Selfishness is a form of insanity. I mean, think about it. Doesn't the devil have to be crazy to think that you could overthrow your creator? Isn't that a crazy thought? That you could somehow dethrone the eternal one? And so after he shows them all this stuff, you know, Hezekiah was so impressive. They came to see me? What? Oh, well. Babylon, you say. It's a center of education. And wow, how am I going to impress them? And so I just better show them what God's done for me. He said, look, let me show you the the armaments we've got. And let me show you the treasures we've got. Let's show you the temple and all the, the clothes and all the beautiful things in our city and the ointments and spices. And you know, we're on the intersection of caravans and we've got so many resources here. And, and they were taking careful notes. Well, it's not what we came to hear about, but it's impressive, yeah. You know, people are going to want your treasure. Whatever your treasure is, people will want. People will be jealous for your treasure. That's why some of you upgrade. You want people to be jealous of your treasure. That's why sometimes we move into better houses and wear better clothes and drive better cars. And Let's face it. Do you know people that, that kind of dress up their cars and their homes and themselves for others to look at? So others will maybe envy and covet it. People will want your treasure. And they're going to come back for it. And that's what happened. And after they left, Isaiah the prophet sent 
to Hezekiah and he said to him, what did these men say and where did they come from to you? Hezekiah said, oh, they came from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Now, um, that's a good thing to underline in your Bible. Do you underline in your Bibles? What have they seen in your house? This is a question that God has for us. What have they seen in your house? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What have they seen in your house? Do you show them God? Or do you show them you? And Hezekiah, he still doesn't get it. He thinks, well, this is normal. Isn't this what we're supposed to do? Impress them and show them all that we've got. And Hezekiah says, they've seen all was in my house. There's nothing among my treasures I've not shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house that your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. You wanted to impress them with your treasure? They were going to take your treasure home. God said, I thought I was your treasure. Children of Israel, they said, make us a king like the nations. God said, I thought I was your king. What is our reward? The Lord is your reward. The Lord is your treasure. The Lord is your king. Is he your all in all? Is it all about Christ? He says, and they'll take away some of your sons who will descend from you and they will be eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. And some of those princes were called Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. This prophecy was perfectly fulfilled. They did came and they completely took away everything that Hezekiah showed them. He showed them all your treasure. Where's your treasure? He said, here in this world, where are you storing up your treasure? Is it all about a name for yourself? Do you know all of that stuff is going to pass away? All of this is going to be worth nothing. The only thing that's going to last forever is heaven. All of the stuff that you've got is going to burn up when Jesus comes. Every now and then I travel and I talk to pastors. I say, you've got the most important job in the world. I said, I appreciate carpenters. I'm glad I've got a well-built house. But it's going to burn when Jesus comes. And I'm thankful for mechanics that know how to make the car run well and engineers that design good machines. I appreciate those things, but you know, all those cars are gonna melt when Jesus comes. And I'm thankful for doctors. They can heal our bodies and make us feel better when we're sick. But you know, that body, flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's not going to heaven. There's nothing you can look around and see right now that's gonna make it to the kingdom. It's what's on the inside that you can't see. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And I tell these pastors, you've got the most important job in the world because you'll be working with something that will really last. Most people work through their lives on things that really don't matter. We store, we work, we save, we strive, we try to get the highest position and none of that's going to matter. The high positions in this world are not going to be the high positions in heaven. I think we're all going to be very surprised how God meets out rewards. Even James and John wanted to sit on the right and left. He says, that's of my father to give. Who was it? Oswald Chambers that said, uh, when I was young, I used to think the best gifts were on shelves, one on top of the other, and the best gifts were on the highest shelves. He says, as I've grown, I've learned that in the Christian life, the best gifts are on the lowest shelves, and you get them by kneeling. It's by humbling ourselves. What have they seen in your house? You know, um, people sometimes ask us about country living. And uh, I'm somewhat of a paradox, if you don't mind my saying, because um, I've probably forgotten more about country living than a lot of people 
have learned, I can just about guarantee that not too many people have lived as country as I did, running around naked up in the mountains. It doesn't get much more country than that. <laughs> and uh, Karen and I have a place up in the hills that has um, had a 39 years, and off the grid, solar. We've got hydro. It's not working now, but we got it. Water, you can grow stuff. No, I know how to fix things. I drive bulldozer, put in ponds, I just uh, the whole thing. But we're living in the city. But um, we appreciate that, praise God, we've got a place we can go to. Everyone knows about our place in Kovalo. I've got a place I'm going to I'm not telling anybody about. No, it's not the cave. But um, one day when I was up at the cabin, we don't get to go there very often because of our work. And a few years ago, I was up there at the cabin and... And uh, we have to order propane because we have a gas refrigerator and we have a gas stove in the summer. You can heat with wood, but it's, the house gets too hot doing that. So we are glad they deliver propane. We ordered some propane. The propane delivery truck came up and the guy jumped out. I mean, we're way out in the hills, nearest neighbors a mile away. And uh, as soon as he jumped out, I looked at him. I thought, he looks strangely familiar. And he said, hey, Brother Doug. And I called his name. I recognized him. He was a young man that I had taught in juniors in, in Sabbath school. I used to teach juniors. And as he grew up with many young people, he stopped going to church and got his own family and became disconnected with the church. And as soon as I saw him, I thought, praise the Lord, the Lord brought him here so I could talk to him about his soul. Amen. Except, the story doesn't have a pretty ending. He said, Doug, I haven't been to this place before. You've got a really nice place up here. Oh, that was all he needed to say. He let the genie out of the bottle. He said, Did, is this solar electric? And I said, well, yes. As a matter of fact, you know, I put in the electric system myself. So let me show you the electric room that I wired. He said, come on in here. He just said, I'm not an electrician, but I had to wire all this. And, and I designed the house. See how the eaves stick out a little bit? It's because of solar in the winter. It gets sun coming in the summer. It keeps it so it doesn't get too hot. And, and uh, you've got the water, gravity flow spring, go through the filter. Just look at this. Turn it on. Want a drink? And I, I started showing him the house. And he delivered the fuel. And I was talking all about it. And I built this and I built that. And then he looked at his watch. He said, oh, hey, i got to make another delivery. And he hopped in his truck and he drove away. And I saw the dust billowing behind his truck. And it suddenly occurred to me, I had become so preoccupied with showing him everything in my house, I had said nothing about his soul or where he was in his relationship with Jesus or prayed with him or anything like that. And I heard this voice. I used to think, how could Hezekiah be so stupid? <laughs> you know, it's really easy for me to see your pride. If any of you want me to tell you about it, I'll tell you. Sometimes it's very hard to see mine. And I heard that voice say, what did he see in thy house? You had this opportunity to talk to him about Jesus. But I was so full of myself that if you just give me a second, like that compass needle, you give me an opportunity to tell you something about me, and it's hard to pass out. And instead, I didn't talk about Jesus. And I wish I could tell you that I saw him again since then, but I never did. I, you know, it doesn't mean he's committed the unpardonable sin. I hope the Lord reaches him, but I missed my opportunity. It makes you wonder how many opportunities that we miss to talk to people about Jesus because of our pride. Now this message, I don't want to just talk about pride. I want to talk about 
Humility. How many more people would we reach if we really meant and lived by not I but Christ? If we had the mind of Christ, the humility of Christ. You know, it says in Testimonies, Volume 9, page 189, if we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted, this statement says, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there's only one. How many conversions would there be? If we would humble ourselves before the Lord. They say one of the great evangelistic opportunities that was lost was when Marco Polo, Matteo Polo, his father Niccolo Polo, when they were before the great Kublai Khan in China, they were Christians of, you know, they from the Roman Catholic ilk, but that was so vastly superior, the teachings of Jesus, they did know some of the Bible and compared to what was there. And when the great Mongol king saw their religion, he thought, these teachings of your Jesus are wonderful. He says, here's what I want you to do. When you go back to your country of Italy, he said, I want you to tell your big priest, the Pope, to send a hundred of your priests to our country and tell our whole country about your religion. Well, they eventually did go back. And they came, and they tried to get an audience with the Pope, and they were having a hard time because at that very time in Rome, there were actually two popes at war with each other. Do you know there was a time in Roman history when the two popes were at war with each other, which of them was a real pope, and they were denouncing all the others with anathema and running them down. And um, finally, after several appeals, they went to the one pope that was still in Rome. I think one was in France, and... And they said, you've got to give us a hundred priests. This is the biggest country in the world and they will all convert to Christianity and this is an opportunity like you'll never have again. And they said, oh, you know, we don't have time for that. And so he said, look, we'll send you two if you'll leave us alone. Two priests, two missionaries. And um, one of them died on their way. The other one got discouraged and two turned back and they never went. And historians say, History would be so very different today if those priests had been able to make it and teach that incredible empire, Christianity. How different the history of the world would be if Hezekiah, at that one moment, instead of talking about himself, had talked about God and they had taken Jehovah back to Babylon. And I told you my story. It just makes me wonder what would God do if we humbled ourselves. You know, there's hope for everybody if we humble ourselves. You can read where it says that even King Ahab, as wicked as he was, when he humbled himself, God said he showed him mercy. When Hezekiah humbled himself, the Lord showed him mercy. The Bible says that when Israel humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came and said, because they've humbled themselves, I will not destroy the city. So what's the answer? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, the Bible doesn't say that God humbles us. Well, he knows how. When he brought him out of Israel, it says he humbled you and allowed you to hunger thirst that you might know that man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But most of the time in the Bible it says we must choose to humble ourselves. He who exalted himself the most is who? The devil. What is his reward going to be? He's going to lose everything. Who has humbled himself the most? Philippians, and this will be my last verse. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. 
Let this mind be in you. Now what's the key? Let it be in you. God wants it to be in you. He won't force himself on you. You need to invite the Spirit of God to be in you. We can't have the humility of Christ just by making up our minds. We need to humble ourselves and invite him in. It's only through having his Spirit that he can choke out the the natural pride. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, you got the Son of God, the creator of the world, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The devil wanted to be equal with God. Christ had a right to be equal with God, but he laid that aside. He made himself of no reputation. He took a, his whole station away, no prestige, no possessions, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. The only thing he had that he left behind was a blood-stained robe for you and me. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. A Christian is a follower of Christ. And if Jesus humbled himself, and he had reason to boast. I mean, who's got more cause to boast than Christ? Can you got more than, I mean, if you're God, do you have a right to boast? Even God says to Job, who, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> so I made the mountains, I made everything. You're gonna, these guys are telling me about me, let me tell you about me. It's like this actress that was at a cocktail party in Hollywood and she was just so full of herself and she found that there she was talking about all her accomplishments and all the people she knew and she finally caught herself, realized what she was doing and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, we've been doing nothing but talking about me. She said, let's talk about you. What do you think of me? <laughs> and God, he's the one who has a right to talk about himself. But he laid that aside. We have no right. We're dust. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of even the death of the cross. I'll be talking about that tonight. I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, because he humbled himself the most, God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And yes, even the name of the devil, even the devil and his minions, they'll all bow. Just as Haman had to humble himself before Mordecai, that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have before you this day two great motives. Christ and the devil. I, him. Selfishness, Love. They are the two polar opposites. We are all infected with the disease of selfishness. It is all in that lower carnal nature. And unless a miracle of grace comes in our hearts through humbling ourselves and presenting ourselves, God will not force you. You must choose. Jesus might wash your feet like he did Peter and he did Judas, but Peter humbled himself and Judas hardened his heart. You've got to decide and say, Lord, I want to go completely all the way with you. Confess to him your sin. And you know, I wonder, I'd like to make a, an appeal as we close with prayer. And we've got a large group here. It may not be practical for us to all stand and come forward because really I'm going to ask everybody to respond. But if you just bow your heads and in your hearts, I'm quite confident from what I read in the Word that all of us struggle 
with sin and selfishness. We all have eye problems. It happens in our work, it happens in our marriages, it happens in our churches. And if God would pour out his spirit on his people, we need to do what the apostles did. We need to humble ourselves and he will lift you up and be willing to say, not I, but Christ. We can only do this as a miracle of grace when God comes into our hearts. And if as I close with prayer, you would like to just join me and say, Lord, forgive us for our sins, our selfishness. We're so thankful that Jesus came and gave us an example of humbling himself and laying himself aside. Help us to have that experience. If that's your desire, would you like to stand in his presence? And we'll pray together as we close. Father in heaven, we see as we look at the litany of examples in your word, even these kings, some that humbled themselves like Solomon in the beginning, said, I am just a child, and you gave him great wisdom. And later when he became proud, he acted as a fool. We see the example of Nebuchadnezzar and Isaiah and Hezekiah and Saul and David and so many others that when they humbled themselves, you lifted them up. Lord, I pray that we can follow the greatest king of all, Jesus, who made all things and yet he laid aside his crown and his throne, the glories of heaven, and he came to this world. He didn't just come, humble himself and come. He humbled himself in this world, giving us an example that those who follow him must realize we can never be proud of, of race or place or face. Lord, I pray that you will cleanse us from our pride, give us your spirit, and help us to experience Christ, our humility. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.